are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Before I read tonight, I think I'll pray first, so let's bow our heads for prayer now. And our Heavenly Father, I pray tonight you'll bless the preaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, and help me to be a blessing to the people now, and to bring them face to face with the reality that someday we are going to face God as Christians, not to answer for our sins, but to answer for our service, and we ought to be very careful. We can fiddle our time away here and waste time, and spend our time upon pleasures and enjoying our journey through the earth, and to wind up one day facing death and look back with hardly a thimble full of service rendered uh, because we genuinely love thee, and that'll be a sad day for us. So help us to know that if we're going to serve, we need to do it now. If we're going to win souls, we need to do it now. If we're going to give, we need to do it now. If we're going to sacrifice, we need to do it now. It'll be too late when death comes and we're in thy presence. Uh, Good intentions are all right, but they will not get the job done. We must follow through on them. Now, bless us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Let me pause and say something here. You notice the various material used here in this passage, gold, silver, precious stone. Those kind of things will endure the fire test. Before you put fire to gold, the purer gold is. You put gold to precious stones, they'll stand the fire test. But wood, hay, and stubble will not stand the test of fire. They'll burn up. And here's a clear indication that some of our works, our service for Christ, will someday be burned up. All of our works will be tried by fire. Some work will abide, some work will burn up. Verse 13, for every man's work shall be made manifest. Now that means the preacher, the deacon, the song leader, everybody sings in the choir, everybody drives a bus, more than that, everybody rides a bus. Every man's work shall be made manifest. In other words, God's not going to check the preacher out and the deacons out, but every Christian, his works are going to be made manifest, not his sin. Your work, what you did for Christ, will be made manifest. And I may pause and ask you, what have you done? What have you done in the last week? What have you done in the last two weeks? What have you done in the last five or six weeks for Christ? Can you point to anything and say, I actually took that time for one person, that's Jesus. And I spent those hours for one person, that's Jesus. And that work was what I call the Lord's work. You see, you don't divide Christian work up into Sunday school work and training union work and choir work and bus work. It is all the Lord's work. And we ought to be working for the Lord because we love him in order to bring glory to him. That should be every Christian's motivation. Now, I want you to understand every man's work. That means everybody here that's a Christian. And it may be before the sun comes up in the morning. I reminded you that actually we have nothing that has to be fulfilled before Christ can come for his own, that his coming is imminent and has been imminent since New Testament times. He could come before I finish this sermon. And the moment the rapture takes place, This judgment that I'm talking about now will take place. 
Before I go any further, let me pin it down and show you it's going to take place uh, when the Lord comes. Turn to First uh, Timothy, or Second Timothy, chapter 4, if you will, please. Hold the First Corinthian passage. Second Timothy, chapter 4, and verse 1. We'll pin down the time of this judgment. How do I know it'll take place when Christ comes for his own? Second Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead. The quick means the living. Who shall judge the living and the dead when? At his appearing and his kingdom. There'll be two judgments. There'll be one judgment at his appearing, and there'll be another judgment preceding the, uh, at, 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 uh, at the close of the millennial reign of Christ. There'll be the judgment of the unsaved, and they'll be judged according to their works too. So the judgment is placed at the time Jesus comes. I'll give you one more proof text for that. I can give you several. But turn to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and look please at verse 12. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. And I'll give you time to find that in your Bible tonight. Revelation 22, verse 12. And you want you to make a note of this. And remember... By the way, three times in this chapter the Lord says he's coming. Verse 7 says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophets of this book. Verse 20 said, He which testifies these things saith, Surely I come quickly. But verse 12 says, And behold, I come quickly, and get the rest of it now, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according as his work shall be. Now, the Lord said, when I come, I'm going to bring my reward with me. We're not rewarded beforehand. We'll serve the Lord here. We may never get our name in the headlines. We may never be recognized for the service we render to Christ here. But you can mark this down. When the Lord comes, his reward is with him. And believers will be rewarded at the coming of Christ. And he says, my reward is with me. Underline the word reward. And get the wording of this text. As my reward is with me to give to every man. Every man's works is what the first Corinthian passage said, shall be made manifest. The Revelation passage said, and I'll give to every man according as his work shall be. So I'm talking about a judgment now that has to do with believer's service, with the believer's work. Last Sunday night I talked about the believer's past judgment as a sinner. And I simply said that our sins were laid on Christ. And Christ was judged in our place as he bore our sins. But now when it comes to service, we will be judged individually for our service. And from that judgment, two things, one of two things will happen. We'll either get a reward or we'll suffer a loss at that judgment. Now let's go back to the first Corinthian passage and continue the reading, please. Verse 13. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, I think I ought to stop and comment. Notice two things in that text. The believer's works are tried by fire. You'll see there's no scales here to weigh the work. There's no tape measure here to measure the work. There's no adding machine to calculate the work. But the work is, is tried by fire. Fire does not test quantity. Fire tests the quality of something. Now, I'm big on numbers. And I push all the time, let's have more in Sunday school, let's win more to Christ, 
And I'm for that. And I don't think we ought to get away from that. But while we're doing that, we ought to remember that God's test at the judgment seat is a test for what sort it is and not what size it is. Because, you see, there may be a little pastor somewhere on in some little town that doesn't have 500 people in the whole town. And if God judged according to size, that pastor wouldn't stand a chance with a church like ours in a city of a million people or more. So God's test for service is not for size. Not necessarily how many we won. Not necessarily how much we did. But the sort. And that word sort is a Holy Spirit chosen word. And it was put in there because God is interested in sort. In other words... When we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and the fire burns, it's not calculating how much, but what kind. What kind of service? Real, true blue service that's rendered to Christ because we love Him. May I stop and give you another passage here? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity or love, I'm become as a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal, which literally means it's like a man beating on the bottom of a tub with a, uh, with a big uh, tablespoon. It's just a loud clanging noise. Oh, I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Keep reading there in the First Corinthians 13 passage, and he goes on to say, Though I have all, made, all faith, so that I could say to you on the mountain, be plucked up and cast into the sea. And he goes on to say, Though I understand all mysteries and have all faith and so on, and have not charity, I'm nothing. Here's what I want you to notice in that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now, get the impact of that. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I sell all my cars. I sell my house and sell everything I've got except the clothes on my back. And I draw all my money out of the bank. And I give everything I've got to feed the poor. And on top of that, though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. I'm going to tell you something. A fellow can give everything he's got, but if he's not motivated by love, there's no reward for it at the judgment seat of Christ. A fellow can die a martyr's death after giving every dime he's got to the poor, but if he's not motivated by a real love for Christ, there is no reward for it at the judgment seat of Christ. Though I do all this, Paul said, and have not love, it profits me Nothing. It's a big fat zero. So God is not only interested in what you do, God is interested in why you do what you do. Why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you go soul winning? Why do you give money? Why do you sing in the choir? What makes you do what you do? If you have any motive other than love for Christ, you ought to back up and say, Dear Lord, help me to be motivated by love for thee. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't be motivated by love for Christ when you think of what Christ has done for you. If I asked Paul what his motive was, he'd answer back in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ constrains me. Did you ever hear that old expression, I wouldn't do that for love nor money? How many of you used that expression before? Most of us have. It's, I don't know whether it's unique to this part of the country or not, but I've heard it over all my life. I wouldn't do that for love nor money. I suppose that they imply by that statement that the two strongest motivating uh, thing is love and money. And you can get a lot of fellows to do things for money. But there's some things fellows won't do for money. You can get a fellow to do things for love that he won't do for money. Because love is the strongest motive. 
love. And if you're motivated by love for Christ, you never have any reason to stop serving. If you're motivated by what glory you get out of it, that, that reaches a, a point of saturation. And, and this glamour and fame and glory gets old. You want to get away from the crowd. If you're motivated by the, the applause of the crowd, and there's a good sermon, and I like that, and, and man, that's wonderful, after a while, that just gets old hat. And you have no reason to keep preaching or serving. If you're motivated by money, after a while, money loses its appeal to you. When you get most everything you want, you can't wear one suit at a time. You can't drive but one car at a time. You can't live in one house at a time. You can't eat but one steak at a time. Most people can't. I've seen some that could eat two. But I mean, you can just enjoy so much of money. And that money gets to a place where it loses its appeal when you have enough of it. it when you can't pay your bills, it becomes a big thing too. When you can pay your bills and everything's taken care of, money loses its appeal. If you're motivated by money, when you get enough money, you cease to have a motivation. If you're motivated by fame and the pat on the back, when you get enough of those pats on the back, they don't mean anything, and you cease to be motivated. But if you're motivated by love for Christ, nothing will ever keep you from being motivated. You can love Him forever, and the longer you live for Him, the more you do love Him, and the more you want to serve Him. So the proper motive for service is I do it because I love Jesus. You know why these people, I think most of these people go out here on Saturday and visit these buses all day long. There's no way in the world you could talk people into doing that kind of a thing. Who in the world go out there on Saturday, visit seven and eight hours, and some of the parts of town they go into and dogs barking at them, and the flies after them in 90 degree weather, and load a bus up on Sunday, and come over here before breakfast. Of course, we all get up before breakfast, don't we? I've been doing it all my life. I never have. Stayed in bed after breakfast. I always get up for breakfast. It's worse that way. Of course, sometimes it's noon, but I always get up for breakfast. Don't you believe that? It's not. Where was it? So they got there on Saturday, and they work all day long. Come here early on Sunday morning, and they get out and go. Is it eight hours on Saturday? Man, they got kids. They got a house. They got grass to cut, but they go anyway. And they come back here on Sunday and crank the bus up early on Sunday morning. And here they go out, and those buses not air-conditioned. And they are rattle traps. And they go chugga, 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 all over town, cabbage town, down through the bumpy roads and through the dust, and they got the windows open, the heat blowing in, and kids hollering, trying to jump out the windows. So, yeah, some kid else knows all about it. <laughs> I'm saying they keep on going, and they come back here when we get out on Sunday. Some of you complain because I preach long. And these four bus people have to get out, get on the bus, take a load of kids way back somewhere and come back. They don't get back to the church until 2 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. By the time they get home and eat, it's time to come back again. Here they come dragging back on Sunday night. Now, we don't pay them anything. They don't get a thing for that. They have to do that for one reason, because they love those kids. It's hard to get somebody in the bus ministry, but it's not too hard to keep them in it. Once they haul a bus load of kids and see some kids saved and get a heart for those kids, they keep on going. And they keep on going, and they keep on going, because there's a love there. Man, if one of my kids got sick in the middle of the night and was hurting, uh, you know what motivate me to get the doctor? I love that kid. I wouldn't ask, how much does it cost? I wouldn't say, good night. A hospital room's now $50-something a day. Let's keep him giving an aspirin. I wouldn't even think about that. I'd say, good night. Doctors charge a lot of money, man. Last time I heard a doctor perform an operation, cost seven or $800, thousand or more. Man, we, we can't do that. I don't ask that. I don't care how much it costs. I want to go to the doctor. I want to be well. I have to mortgage everything I got, sell everything I got, go out and borrow more. I want to take care of that kid. Why? I love him. And if we love God like we ought to love God, 
We don't have to be primed all the time to serve God. We don't have to be primed to sing in the choir, primed to go to prayer meeting, and beg to go to sewing visitation, and beg to give. I won't be honest with you. If you love God, you don't have to be begged. You say, I don't believe that. All right, I'll give you a proof text. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he that saith he loves me and keepeth not thy commandments is a liar. Now, you can't beat that. You say that's your interpretation. You interpret that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your commandments give the tithe. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Your commandments, not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews 10.25. You see, if you love like you ought to love, everything else falls in place. And if your service is not rendered because you love Christ, I'm glad you're doing it. I want you to keep doing it even if you have the wrong motive. But don't look for reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Because the only service rewarded at the judgment seat will be service that's rendered because you love God. That's it. Now keep reading here. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And I call your attention again to verse 13. Every man's work shall be tried by fire of what sort it is. What kind of work was it? Did you do it because you loved him? Was your heart surrendered to him? Did you think about his dying at Calvary? Did you think about him suffering hell on that cross? And because of what he did for you, just say, Lord, I want to do this for you now. I want to witness. I want to give. I want to serve. I want to drive a bus and bring kids in to hear the gospel. I want to work for you, Lord, because of what you did for me. If not, you have the wrong motive. Of what sort it is. The kind of work. The quality. Now let's keep going. Verse 14. If, many, if any man's work abide which he hath built their own, he shall receive a reward. As that same word we found in Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to every man according as his work shall be. Now, here it is. If a man's works abide thereon. In other words, he puts a fire to it. If it wasn't wood, hay, and stubble. Now, let's be honest. There's a lot of things that go under the name of religion that are as false and hollow and empty as they can be. I don't mean to be critical, but I must give an illustration. I used to preach around in some places, and we had singing groups. I'm not against singing, I'm for singing. But we had singing groups that come in and sing in the services. And when they got through singing, they'd go and leave. They wouldn't even stay for the preaching. They'd go outside and pick their fingernails while I preached on the inside of the building. They come for one reason. They come to get an offering, and they come to get the applause of the people, and they left. When souls came forward to be saved, they never dealt with a soul in an altar. They were professional singers. Just like a man's professional exterminator. And when I notice that, I cut them off and I don't have them. You say, Brother Curtis, are you mean? You get mad? No, I'm not getting mad. I'm just telling you. Man, if you just do it for the glory you get out of it, if you do it for the love offering, if you do it for the paycheck, you're doing it for the wrong reason. But if you do it because you love God and you do it whether you got money or not, then you're doing it for the right reason. I tell the people away from here. I don't tell you all that, but I tell the people away from here. I tell the congregation I preach to, I'd say, I'd preach to my people if they didn't give me a dime. In fact, I'd pay my crowd to let them preach to them. Let me preach to them. But of course, I tell folks I'm away from here. I don't tell you all that here because I'm afraid you let me try it. But, <laughs> but I would. I would pay you let me preach here. God knows if I could afford it, I'd, I'd pay you. Anything you ask, let, let me preach. I like to preach. I want to serve. I thank God you've been very liberal and very good to me. But God knows that's not the reason I serve here. If I had thought of that, I never would have come here as pastor. 
I came here because I, I thought God wanted me here to be able to work here, and I've stayed here for that reason. Now, he said, if your works abide, you'll get a reward. You get a reward. Now, the Greek word reward is mistos, M-I-S-T-H-O-S, and it means payment for service rendered. You get paid off. There's a payday for the guy who sold out to God, who serves God because he loves him. There's a payday coming. And I can hardly wait. Now, I don't suppose I'll get every reward, but I'm dead sure I'm going to get some. You say, bragging? Nope, but I just know I'm going to get some. Now, the reward takes the form of five crowns. And I'm going to share them with you, man. You may open your Bible and follow along with me. We'll just take the nearest one to the first Corinthian passage, which is first Corinthians 9. We'll take the first crown, which is mentioned. And this has to do with Olympic games, so it's very fitting that I should share this tonight. The first crown that comes as a part of the reward it's found in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. And every man that striveth, striveth for the mastery. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. This had to do with the old Olympic Games. Before they gave gold medals, they'd give them corruptible crowns, crowns that would fade away. A fellow would strive just like you saw the athletes in the last two weeks running the 400 meter and the 200 meter and putting everything they had into it. And they were striving. He'd look back at that guy on the side and he'd strive and he'd run and it got easy enough for him. He'd give it all he had. And he'd, just as he got to the wire, he'd lunge into the wire and hit it and break it first. What? For a corruptible crown. For a corruptible crown. For something that'll fade away. And Mark Spitz swam eight hours a day. I'm told for years, getting ready for the 1972 Olympics. And he came away with seven gold medals. Back in these days, when men would, would strive for the master, they didn't give away gold medals. It was a corruptible crown, something that'd fade away. And notice what he said. And they, every man that strives for the mastery, the master in the 400 meter, the master in the 200 meter, the master in the broad jump or the high jump, he is temperate. In other words, he watches himself. He disciplines his life. He can't be number one. He can't be the best if he's not a temperate fellow. And watch it. In all things... Now what? Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we are an incorruptible. And Paul said in verse 26, I therefore so run. He's talking about somebody in a race. I'm running too. Not as uncertainly so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Now what is this crown? It's called an incorruptible crown. They do it for a corruptible crown, but Paul said we do it for an incorruptible crown. And to whom is this crown given? Look at verse 27. It's given to the man who keeps his body under and brings it into subjection. You have an old carnal nature. When you're saved, your carnal nature is not done away with. You become a spiritual schizophrenic. You have two natures. You have the new nature and the old nature, and there's a war on it. Galatians 5, 17 says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit lusteth against the flesh, and these two are contrary one to the other. Now, the man or the woman who gets this incorruptible crown is the man or the woman who can say no to his old carnal fleshly desires and beat the old flesh down, like Paul said, I keep it under. I bring my body into subjection. My body doesn't rule me, I rule my body. It wants another drink of liquor? I say no. It wants to smoke some cigarette? I say no. I don't let my carnal, fleshly nature rule. I keep it in subjection. And the battle for every Christian is to keep this old, 
fleshly, carnal nature in subjection. Now, you may listen to the desires of your flesh and do things you shouldn't do. And if you trusted Christ, you'd still go to heaven. But you wouldn't get this crown at the judgment seat. This crown belongs to the fellow who disciplines himself. This crown belongs to the woman who disciplines herself and keeps the body under subjection. It's an incorruptible crown. Not every Christian will get it. Some Christians will. You can get it. Someday God will trust you. You want to try your works? And you're going to get a reward? Will you get this crown? Young people, let me challenge you. We're living in a day when morals are so loose and lax and where we have what they call the new morality, which is no morality. And we live in a permissive society with new newspaper ads and televisions and the theater ads. And it just looks like everybody ought to be living like wild animals because of the way things are going in our country. But young people, let me tell you, it still pays to live pure and decent and right. And you ought to say, some of you young fellows, God's called you to preach, you ought to say, I'll keep my body under subjection. I won't be loose and wild and frivolous. And you young girls ought to say, I'll keep my body under subjection. I won't be loose and wild and frivolous. I'll be pure in my conduct. That crime belongs to the man who keeps his body under subjection. May I hurry to move to the next one? And I suppose the next one in order would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, moving through the Bible. That's page 1268 in your old Schofield Bible. And it's verse 19. And this is called the crown of rejoicing. Verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? What is Paul's crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye, he's talking to the Christian at Thessalonica, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? When Jesus comes, the people Paul had won to Christ, in the presence of Christ will be his crown of rejoicing. So the crown of rejoicing I call the soul winner's crown. That's the people you won to Christ that will be in heaven with you. When Christ makes his appearance, ye are our crown of rejoicing in the presence of our Lord at his coming. Now, I may not get some of the crowns, but I'll get this one. I hadn't won all I could win to Christ, but I'm going to have somebody there that I won to Christ. When I go to heaven, there's somebody already in heaven that I won to Christ. If I go tonight, I've got a good number of people I won to Christ that are in heaven. I've won some on their deathbed. I remember one in particular. They'll be in heaven. If you want to get the crown of rejoicing, you're going to have to lead people to Christ. Soul winner, get the crown of rejoicing. You know what? It makes me rejoice to win souls here, but I'm sure we'll rejoice more at, one, at the presence of our Lord when he comes to think we've won five or six or eight or ten. And every Christian ought to be busy soul winning. Amen? Man, it's my job to get people saved. I can't talk like others, and I don't have the vocabulary, and I'm a little more timid, but I can witness, and I'll get Bible tracts and good news cards, and I'll go to soul winning visitation, or I'll visit folks on my street. What if every Christian here decided tonight that I won't live on the block I'm living on or the street I'm living on without witnessing to everybody on my street or my block. We'd almost evangelize Atlanta if our church members did that. You say, I'm going to take everybody on my block, go down and get the folks next door and the folks next door to them. If I've been there a long time, I'll go down and tell them I'm sorry that I didn't come to see them before now. And ask them to forgive me and tell them I'm coming for one reason, to show my the Bible how to be saved and know when they die they're going to heaven. Let me be grateful I say, I'll take my street to Christ. I'll take my block. Not take two blocks, one block. Maybe 15 houses, you can do that. We can do it. We're responsible. 
There may not be anybody else on that block that knows how to tell people how to be saved. You may be the only person there. You want the crown of rejoicing? All right, you have to be a soul winner. Let me turn and get the other one real quickly. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Keep moving toward the back of the Bible. And here you have the third crown mentioned. And this is Paul at the end of his ministry, about ready to die. And he's fixing to be martyred for his faith. And look what he says. Down in verse 6, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. They're fixing to take him out and cut his head off now. He's fixing to pay with his life. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. Paul said he's going to give me a crown of righteousness. And look who it's going to go to. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. This is a crown of righteousness, and it's for those who love Christ appearing. I don't know what that strange noise we've been hearing all day long. We've got to find out what it is, though. But there's something. Y'all keep hearing it. I thought it was a baptistry, and Brother Reynolds said it was off this morning, for sure. And it's still off. So I don't know what's up here. I've had strange things happen to me this week anyway. I came out of the airport the other day down one of these long tunnel-like things in, the, in Knoxville, and a bat was flying up and down that tunnel. And I can't stand a bird anyway, flying bird in my face. I just, I just didn't have a rattlesnake at me. I'd have a flying bird around close to me. And that bat kept dipping down. I thought he was going to hit me. And I was laying on the floor and swinging bags at him and everything else. <laughs> then I got on an escalator and started down an escalator. And there's an old man, an old woman, a young woman. And the escalator's going down. And I knew they was going to fall. When they got to the bottom, the old man fell. Then, of course, the old woman, she fell over the old man. <laughs> and the young woman, she couldn't stop because if you was walking down the steps, you could stop and let him get up. If you're on an escalator, you can't stop. So just, and I'm right behind the young woman, and there's a hundred and something behind me coming down the same escalator. The old man fell, the old woman fell, the young woman fell, and I'm next to fall. And I said to myself, I had to do it in about a split second. I'd say, now, am I going to step on them? If I step on them, the other man behind me is going to step on them. They'll be stomped to death in a minute. I can't step on them, and I don't want to fall down with them and get stepped on. And I'm, I can't jump them, and this escalator's going down. So I, I took my bags and just pitched them over to the side... And I squatted down and scooped both arms under the young woman, picked her up, the old woman up, and the old man up, and shelled them all. <laughs> just shoveled the whole group right out in the lobby. And the escalator never stopped. And then I got in a ton of the bat got at me. So the, these weird noises are just, just, just common experiences for me, so don't pay much attention to them. Don't tell what will happen next week. Anyway, here we go. Where was I? Oh, back here. Paul said, Aren't you got the crown incorruptible for the man who keeps his body under subjection? And then you got the you got the crown of rejoicing for the soul winner, and now you got a crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. Now, you got to make dead sure you love his appearing, and not your disappearing. You know, I, I hear women say, "I'll be so glad when Jesus comes. My husband beats me, and he's mean to me, and I'll be so glad to get out and, and get to heaven, and well, I don't have to live in this all my life." But in that case, she doesn't love his appearing; she loves her disappearing. She's not anxious to see Jesus. She's anxious to get away from that mean husband. And some fellow got himself so far in debt he can't ever get out. He said, I should be glad when Jesus comes to leave these debts of the Antichrist. Well, he won't get the crown of rejoicing. He doesn't love the Lord's appearing. He loves his disappearing. He's not anxious to see the Lord. He's anxious to get out from one of these debts he's made for himself. So make dead sure you love his appearing and not your disappearing. There's no crown of righteousness for those who love their disappearing, but there's a crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. Those who said, Lord, I want to see you. I'm anxious to see you, man. You saved me, and I, 
I've walked with you these years, and you've been invisible to me, and I couldn't see you, but I've sensed your presence, and I felt you, and you answered prayer, and oh my, I want to see Jesus. It's a crown for people who want to see Jesus. It's a crown of rejoicing. Now, I think I'll get this one. I believe that's mine, because I, I do love his appearing. I want to see I like to sing that song, Oh, I want to see Look upon his face. Let us sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past home at last, ever to rejoice. We sing it sometimes here. I want to see him. I wish he'd come. I wish he'd come soon. But if he doesn't come, I'm going to keep on working and serving him. Third crown, keep turning. And that's in Second Peter, or First Peter, chapter 5. Moving toward the back of the Bible, First Peter, chapter 5. And this is called the crown of glory that fadeth not away. And it's for what I call the full-time Christian worker. It's a man who serves the Lord. It's here called the pastor's crown, but I think it should also be called any full-time Christian worker's crown, where he be missionary, school teacher, or what. But it, it really is addressed to the pastors. If you look at verse 1, 1 Peter 5, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, that's a preacher, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partake of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Pastor's supposed to be an overseer. He's not supposed to have overseers. He's supposed to be an overseer. He's taking the oversight, not by constraint, not because you're made to do it, got to do it, not by constraint, but willingly. And keep reading it, not for filthy lucre. And let me say, that doesn't mean dirty money. It means ill-gotten gain. Not for filthy lucre. Not doing it for the money you get out of it. And not getting money by shady means. Keep reading. But of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but in samples to the flock. A good pastor ought to be an ensample to the flock. May I say a pastor will never be a good pastor? Unless he is an example or an ensample to the flock. No pastor builds a soul winning church unless he's a soul winning pastor. No pastor has a separated membership, he's not a separated pastor. I tell pastors all this country, you don't attract what you want, you attract what you are. They say, I could build a great soul winning church if I, God sends some soul winners. I said, he won't send them unless you're a soul winner. If people joined your church, you were soul winners and found you never won anybody, they'd transfer membership as soon as they found it out. You can't keep them. If you're not a soul winning pastor, if you're not a separated pastor, if you're not a dedicated pastor, you'll have the kind of people that you are a person as a pastor. Of course, I should, maybe not many pastors here tonight, but I ought to say it because we're here. And he says, not as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples of the flock. In other words, a pastor is to serve not by constraint, but willingly, and not for ill-gotten gain, and not as being a lord over God's heritage, but being an example or an example to the flock. And the Bible said, if you're this kind of a pastor, look at the next verse. When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. I'd like to think that would be mine. I'm working on it. I want to get that one. I'd hate to be a pastor and go to heaven and not get this crown. If I did, I wouldn't have wouldn't known in heaven I'd been a pastor. I want to get this one. You know, we could revolutionize the whole world if we only had in the pulpits of America dedicated, sold-out, genuine, red-hot, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, soul-winning pastors. But I must say, and I say it based on my experience traveling every week of my life, that over half the pastors in America are in pulpits don't know what it is to be called to the ministry. And I'd say over half the pastors in the pulpits of America have themselves never had a born-again experience. They don't know what born-again means. It's just a little social sermonette, 
a little social gospel, a little ritualistic service, and, and the people go out at 12 o'clock, nobody ever gets saved, that's not even in the vocabulary. Blood's not in the vocabulary. Hell's not in the vocabulary. Saved's not in the vocabulary. It's little social sermonettes telling you how to be a good girl scout or a good boy scout. And man, no gospel is ever preached. Spurgeon said, I want to be famous for one thing, and that's preaching the old gospel. And I want to be famous for one thing, preaching the old gospel. I enjoy preaching the gospel this morning from that little passage, the brazen serpent lifted up. The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if we could change that, and I think the reason for it is that in our schools, our Bible schools and colleges, that over at Emory University, how in the world could you ever turn out a preacher at Emory University and ever do anything? When we had a man right here in the service the other day that was told that he could not graduate unless he changed his ideas about God and his views on being so conservative, the Bible's the Word of God and the virgin birth and that stuff. They said he had, they'd never give him passing marks until he changed his views on that. That they were not about to give a doctorate to a fellow that conservative. Well, of course, he dropped out. He came to me and we counseled together. A couple of years ago, his name was in the newspaper. You read about it. His name was Robertson. He was here about two or three weeks ago in service. We talked together for a while. Get him off to see me. And he's trying to decide what to do. How in the world could a fellow ever come out of a place like that and be a preacher? He don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. He laughs at the Genesis account of creation. If God would lie in one part of the book, he'd lie in all of it. If a fellow goes to a school like that that's loaded down with liberal professors that spits on the Bible and spits on the virgin birth and spits on the blood atonement, and spits on a literal physical resurrection, and spits on the miracles of the Bible and tries to explain them all away, and comes out of there and still has any faith, it is a miracle. You destroy the faith of a guy like that. If I didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God, I'd get out of the ministry and make an honest living. Because if I didn't believe the Bible was the Word of God, I'd be a dishonest crook. I'd be taking money into false pretense every Sunday. And fellows who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God ought to say, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, and I don't want to be a preacher. What do you want to be a preacher for if you don't believe the Bible is the Word of God? I guarantee you one thing, if old John Wesley was back here, and they turned him loose on some of these Methodist universities, I guarantee you one thing, they'd have a right or a revival, one or the other. I know, buddy, I've got the 14-volume underbridge set of John Wesley's works, and I've read them. I used to live with him every morning, two or three hours, as I read his journal. I'd make out like I was on ship with him as he was studying German and writing songs. They wrote four volumes of songs on the Gospels. Just on the Gospels alone, as they'd ride horseback. I've lived with John Wesley. I read his sermons. I read his sermons, and they're so strong, it makes me feel like I'm soft soaping when I preach. Well, John Wesley cut it loose, boy. He talked to, you think real conservative Baptists talk about dress. Read John Wesley's sermons. He talked about dress. He said there was a time... Uh, when Methodists didn't dress so and so, and he said, he said we, we should have had a, a rule about it. He's mean. He's indicted in the state of Georgia now for slapping a glass out of a woman's hand at the Lord's table. She went to take what they call communion, and she, he said she wasn't fit to do it, slapped the glass out of her hand. That's John Wesley. And if the Methodist church was like it was when it was founded, I'd join it tomorrow. But it's nothing like it was when it was founded. And if John Wesley looks down now with tears in his eyes at these liberal places and we're still putting our, some methods still putting their money in the thing. Man, if the Bible's right, if it's the Word of God, why well, stay with the Word of God and support it? If it's not, spit on it and throw it out and forget it. And get drunk and eat and be merry. For tomorrow you die and you'll die like a dog. There's no heaven and hell if the Bible's not right. 
I got news that the Bible's right. The Bible's right. There is a heaven, there is a hell. And as long as I live, I intend to stay true to this book. If I'm spit on and shot at and murdered, I'm going to stay with this book. And I debate any liberal in the country give me a chance. And guarantee him to stomp him, too. You can say amen to that, but bring them on, buddy. I'm ready for them. You stick with this book. That's all you got to do. Stick with this book. Stick with this book. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And he's got to deny the Bible after a while. You can't explain the existence of this Bible except in terms of the supernatural. I got to hurry. But I get a little perturbed, I guess, and aggravated, seeing preachers, good backslappers, don't preach. You know, there's, we don't have a problem in America that some old-fashioned preaching wouldn't solve. If we just had some preachers go to the pulpits next Sunday morning and roll it, just push your sleeves up. But I come to preach this morning. I'm tired of pushing the button. I come to preach. Look out and say, you're sorry drinking deacons! And you're quiet. It was over at the club last night in the dance hall. And just cut out on them and whack and cut. We don't have a problem that old-fashioned preaching wouldn't solve in this country. But we've gotten away from, far away from God and away from the Bible. It's psychology. Most preachers have become professional counselors and they do a sloppy job at it. They spend all time counseling, 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 counseling. God didn't call me to establish a counseling center. He called me to preach. Well, let's move on. But the word, the man who stays with the Bible and doesn't lord over God's heritage, but is an example of the flock and lives right. And his congregation sees him live right. The Bible said, when the chief shepherd shall appear, he'll give you a crown of glory that fades not away. I'd like to say, Brother Curtis, you're a country preacher and you wasn't very well educated, but you sure did hang in there, buddy. And here's your crown of glory that fades not away. Amen. I'd rather have that than 18 PhDs had put behind my name. Amen? Let me give you one more crown and we'll keep moving. This is the second point in my three-point sermon that I started last Sunday night. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Hear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And this is what I call the martyr's crown. It's the fellow who does not recant even at the point of death, but he's faithful even unto death. To say, deny the Bible, I will kill you. I can't deny the Bible. Recant, I will burn you alive in a stake. I can't recant. Like old Bishop Polly Cart when they said, you'll deny Jesus, you'll untie him at your door. Paul Eckhart said, 86 years if I serve him, he has not once denied him. I will not deny him now. Light the flame. And they lift the flame, and old Paul Eckhart went up and smoked. But he went into heaven to get the martyr's crown. Kind of like, died for his I don't guess none of us know till we face it. But I'd like to think that I'd let him kill me before I deny the Bible. If the communists take over in America, you know the first people they're going to get? People that believe the Bible's the Word of God. They'll let these liberal churches keep operating. But they won't let my kind keep operating. Because we're a threat to them. 
You can't help but be a threat to it because communist is anti-Bible, anti-Christ, anti-God. They do read the works of Marx and Lenin. You find it for yourself. They're against the family. They're against the private ownership of property. They want to take and give take uh, and everything belong to the state and they distribute it. You ought to know that when your government guarantees a wage to somebody, your government's not a money-making organization. They don't make any money in Washington, you know. They collect it. And I happen to know who they collect it from. And when they guarantee somebody $150 a week or $200 a week, they guarantee on them they're going to collect enough of me to pay that. I'm for helping the fella that can't work, but I'm not for making bums out of people by making it easier to stay at home and lay on the couch and watch television than it is to work. When you give him as much stay at home as it does for him to go to work, sure he's going to stay at home. I talked with a guy not too long ago. He said, he said I ain't going to work. He said, I got to figure it out. If I go to work, I got to pay much, so much transportation, so much for a babysitter. And I can draw so much from the government. And he said, I'm better off drawing it from the government than I am working. I ain't about to go to work. I started to say, you dirty bum. I'm looking after the people he's looking at, but I'm not looking after the bum. A fellow come with me in the service the other night, and he argued with me. He said, me we didn't care about the poor. I said, we do. I said, but I don't care about making bums out of people. He said, poverty never helped anybody. And I said, I gave him several illustrations where poverty did help people. And he said, you don't believe that? I said, sure, I believe that. I said, I said, I'm for the guy who is poor and doesn't have anything to eat. But I'm not for the guy who could get a job and work but won't work. He's looking for a handout. And I said, a lot of people are looking for a handout. He said, nobody's looking for a handout in this country. I said, I know one guy looking for a handout. He came by my office and wanted to pay his rent, groceries. And he was a picture of health. He said he couldn't get a job. I said, okay, tell you what I'll do. we got grass needs to be cut. You cut our grass. we got to lay him and wants her grass cut. You go cut her grass, cut this grass. We'll, we'll pay you rent and get your groceries. And that's high-priced grass cutting too, buddy. You know what he did? He stomped around my office and puffed and blowed. Got mad as a devil and walked out. He didn't want to work. He wanted a handout. I would dare say he went to every church in town. And, and those that didn't. And appealed to them, said, well, y'all are Christians now. You know, Christians are supposed to help the poor. And the first thing you know, he got 20 from this one and 10 from that one and 20 from the other one. But he didn't get nothing from this one. If he wanted to work, I'll pay him. But I'm not willing to pay him, give somebody money to sit around and do nothing. The Bible's pretty plain on that. The Bible said, if a man don't work, don't let him eat. And if he gets hungry enough, he'll cut grass with his teeth. Well, anyway, here's this fifth crown. It's to call the martyr's crown. It's for the man who's faithful unto death. Faithful to what? Faithful to Christ. Faithful to the Bible. Says the Bible's the word of God. I don't care if everybody says it's not. It's the word of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ died for sin. He was raised from the dead physically and bodily. And he's faithful and he stands there. He said, we're going to kill you if you keep it up. He said, he's still the Son of God until they kill him. Jesus, come on into heaven. We've got one more crown to put on top of those other four back there. We're going to call this the crown of life for the fellow who's faithful unto death. I hope I've put one thing into you people. Faithfulness. I hope you'll stand for the word of God if the whole world turns against it. In the name of education sometime, which is bad. But a man can be educated in one field and be an ignoramus in another field. And don't accept the fellow's opinion about the Bible 
though he may have six Ph.D. degrees, unless he studied the Bible. I've talked to Ph.D.s that don't know the first four books in the Bible. And no professor at any school has any right to make a comment about the Bible because he has studied the Bible and knows what's in the Bible. Just like I have no right to give somebody a medical opinion and prescribe medicine because I'm not a medical doctor, I'm an ignoramus in that field. And a medical doctor that doesn't know the Bible has no right passing opinions on the Bible unless he studies the Bible. He's an ignoramus in my field. In my field, I'm an expert. Not bragging. I know the Bible. You don't tell me about the Bible. I've been through the Bible upside down, backwards and frontwards and every other way. I, I know the Bible. I've lived in the Bible for 20 years. This is the Word of God. And I love it. Amen. Amen. I'm going to stick with it. Those are five crimes you can get. And they'll be given to you when the Lord comes. And they'll be given to you based on one thing. If your works survive, God gives his rewards. Works survive. Works survive. And you could face him before the sun comes up in the morning. I don't know whether you will or not, but you could. If you face him before the sun came up, are you ready to meet him at the judgment seat? What do you have to offer? What have you done for Christ? I mean really, honestly and truly, what have you done for Christ? Have you won anybody to Christ? Have you made a sacrificial gift to help in a real worthy ministry at all? What have you done for Christ? Do you have any works? Some, I would say some because you don't even have any works. And those who have works are wood, hay, and stubble that will be burned. And some have works, of course, of gold, silver, and precious stone. God expects everybody who's saved to work. There's something you could do for Christ. You can change a diaper in the nursery. You can cut the grass. You can sweep the floor. You can make sure the air conditions are set properly. You can check out what that noise was up there and get it fixed. Some of it's an air conditioned man. How many something everybody can do? And every Christian ought to be performing some service for Christ. That's his whole purpose of leaving you on this earth. He has no way of getting the job done except through us as Christians. We're going to face him. Our judgment is a sinner and our judgment as a servant. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.